But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, who strength, which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You may be seated. Just a fun fact for locals. Somebody tell me what is the highest point or where is the highest point in Lancaster County? Somebody said, uh, I think you're close. Somebody, somebody give me another. The dump. In recent years, the Lanchester landfill became the highest point in Lancaster County. Several years ago, uh, when I was working for Millstream Landscapes, I had the privilege of helping at a um, beautiful deck patio down on uh, Spring Road, just uh, off of, just west of uh, Belmont, off of White Oak Road. Summit Hill Road, which is accurately named, used to be the highest point in Lancaster County. And on that particularly clear day, standing there on that deck along Spring Road, which is almost the same height as Summit Hill Road, I'm told, we could see the Lanchester landfill. Uh, we guessed uh, that it was just a bit over 10 miles as the crow flies, but you could see the, uh, the, the kind of the outline of the, uh, the dump. <clears throat> I've chosen to speak today on the joy of contentment, just uh, summarizing contentment. As we think of the season that we're in of Thanksgiving, and the month, the week, the day, where we think about our blessings, we think about what we have. I came across a reading some time ago 
um, a book entitled Economic Insanity, written by a man named Lawrence Shames. I know next to nothing about him. But in that book there, just a few excerpts there, he writes more. If there's a single word that summarizes American hopes and obsessions, that's it. More money, more success, more luxuries and gizmos. We live for more, he says, for our next raise, for our next house, and the things that we already have, however wonderful they are, tend to pale in comparison with the things that we might still get. And in my opinion, that's a very inaccurate, a very accurate analysis of contemporary values. He goes on and he says, during the past decade, many people have come to believe that there doesn't have to be a purpose. The mechanism, he's writing about consumerism, the mechanism doesn't require a purpose, you see. Consumption keeps the workers working, which keeps the paychecks coming, which keeps the people spending, which keeps inventors inventing, and keeps investors investing, which means that there's more to consume. And he goes on, he says, it is my conviction that the version of success that was dominant in America in the 80s and 90s, a success defined almost exclusively in terms of money and virtually without reference to the substance of one's achievement, has served us badly. A vision of success based on money alone is a dangerous dead end. Over time, by the rigid rules of that game, he's going back to the game of consumerism, there will be inevitably more losers, fewer winners, less joy, and more desperation in the contest. For reasons of simple self-interest, he says, we need to cultivate a new definition of a well-lived life. Well, as we look at Philippians 4, and as we search our own lives, we realize, don't we, that the quest for peace of mind, the quest for contentment, can be an elusive journey. It's just always around the next curve. The carrot is always just, just in front of us. And so today, I'd like for us to think about the subject of contentment. And we'll turn to the book of Philippians in chapter 4. And I've specially uh, targeted the last part of the chapter. But earlier, at the beginning of chapter 4, it's, we have teaching on the peace of God. And I think this is such an answer, such an anecdote for, such an antidote for, for the discontent that we feel. And that is the peace of God, focusing on what God has done for us. I remember a number of years ago hearing John Yu talk about how, and numerous times uh, otherwise, how he has never heard anybody complaining about what God has done for them. So true. Who of us has ever heard people publicly complaining about God's gift to us? <clears throat> when we think about the peace of God, passing all understanding, according to chapter 4, verse 7, 
and that the peace of God has promised to be with us, according to verse 9, the God of peace. And we discovered that these blessings can be ours through right praying in verse 6 and through right thinking in verse 8 and right living in verse 9 of chapter 4. And the Greek word for contentment here in this chapter has a root word that is translated sufficient in other places in the New Testament. The idea that there is enough. What we have is enough. What God has provided for us is enough. What we have in our lives is and should be enough. We should find contentment and satisfaction in what we have. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul, or God told Paul, he says, my grace is sufficient. That's the same Greek word. That's the root word. My grace is sufficient. It's enough for you. My grace is enough for you. It also shows up in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee or forsake thee. I've outlined this sermon in four areas, four aspects of contentment that I see here in the book of Philippians in this text. Four aspects of contentment that we see here in these verses. First of all, let's look at contentment in the place where God has stationed us. The text tells us in verse 11 that contentment was something that Paul possessed in whatsoever state he was. He said, in whatsoever state I am, whatever, whatever condition, whatever position he was in, he was able to find contentment. And Paul, in his writings, in the epistles, is very quick to express his thanks, to let his friends know that he was not complaining. We see Paul in difficult situations numerous times in his life, but his happiness is not dependent on the circumstances that he finds himself in at any given time. His happiness, his, his source of sufficiency is not found in the things that he has. His joy comes from something that exceeds that, that is deeper and more inclusive, that presses further than poverty or prosperity, either one. Now, most of us, most of us have learned that when we're abased, we've learned how to be abased because things, life has been tough for us sometimes. And we've learned in those times that we can run to God, right? But there's very few people that have learned how to abound Notice what he says. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And verse 12, he goes on, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. That's a challenge for all of us, to learn how to abound, learn how to succeed. Prosperity has done for, far more damage to us, it's been said, than poverty ever has. 
Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, says that the church of Laodicea was rich and increased with goods. And as a result of that, they thought they had need of nothing. They had clothing. They thought they were clothed. God said they were naked. They thought they had wealth. God said they were poor. They didn't realize how God saw them. And God saw them poor and miserable and wretched and naked. They didn't know that they needed a relationship with Jesus in order to be clothed and rich. Well, Paul knew how to live in good times, and he knew how to live in bad times. In verse 12, the word abound appears twice as he describes his contentment during times of plenty or times of prosperity, times of success. Abound means more than enough. Abound means that when, when we abound, it simply means that we have more than we need, more than enough to go around. The Bible tells us that Paul grew up in Tarsus, and he was probably moderately affluent in his upbringing. Throughout his childhood years, it's likely that he had plenty of wealth being from Tarsus. And the church in Philippi had its well-to-do members as well, according to the story in Acts. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and his associates were entertained in the house of Lydia, a woman who was a seller of purple. In other words, she was a, a well-to-do person. She was a prominently wealthy woman who made her living by buying and selling, um, probably at, at sizable uh, uh, markups. After the earthquake and the miraculous deliverance from prison in Philippi, Paul and Silas were nursed by the jailer, and the jailer provided a very impromptu banquet. It probably speaks to his wealth as, a, as a, yeah, an individual. The whole story of Paul's interaction at Philippi is one of um, having plenty around, if you look at it. And I'm encouraged to see that Paul and Silas and the jailer and Lydia, in spite of that, were caring and sharing and giving and ministering to each other. They were using what they had to serve others, which is where it's at. For Paul, it didn't really matter whether he was feasting or fasting. For him, it didn't matter if he was rich or poor. He had learned to be content. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, there's more discussion on this same subject by Paul. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10, he writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content." But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil 
which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And he goes on. Paul's contentment is inclusive of any situation, any location. He has learned to be content everywhere and in all things, he says. And may I remind you that Paul was not writing this from the penthouse or from a cruise ship. He was, as he wrote this, he was incarcerated. He was in prison, chained, the Bible tells us, to a Roman soldier. In the latter part of verse 12, I want you to notice a word that especially stood out to me as I studied. There's the word instructed. You see that word? I am instructed. That in modern terminology means learning or being schooled. In other words, Paul is saying, I have learned the secret. It describes a person who has worked their way up through the system. He has become experienced because of what the body of experience that he has had. He has learned contentment. He has been instructed, he says, on the meaning of contentment through varied degrees. He finally reached the upper tier. And I think that he's saying that he's become progressively detached from the world, the things around him. He's had increasing maturity on this particular point. Bit by bit, test by test, circumstance by circumstance, the things that came into his life instructed him, taught him, schooled him. And as he persevered, he graduated. He passed the test. And the secret, the award, the diploma, was his. Well, I have not conquered that. I stand before you today finding it difficult many times to be content in life. I have not learned that. I have personal goals and aspirations. I'd like to see some things accomplished in my life that I currently haven't accomplished. I have goals in terms of family and business and personal goals and church life and things like that. And I struggle, I believe, to be a content, naturally content person with the pace of life and the pace of things. And I, I feel discontent with the thought sometimes that it may not be God's will for those things to happen at all. I am not naturally a content person. At the same time, as I preach here, I'm cautious and conscious that I don't want to come across that it is okay to be passive or lazy or to, have, to be lethargic in our, in our life. Those are big problems for us, and the Word addresses those just, as, just the same. I think it is completely true, according to Scripture, that we should never be content with our knowledge of God. We should never be content with our time spent in reading and praying and interacting with the Word and praying. We should never be content with the amount of witnessing and lost souls that are won for the kingdom. We should never be content with personal growth and maturity in our lives. Never should we get to the place where we think that we have arrived in some way or another, spiritually speaking. But it seems like so many people go through life thinking that if they could just relocate, if they could just, they could be happy. If they could just get that dream job, 
they could be fulfilled. If they could just go to a different church, if they could just have different friends, if there would just be some way that they could, you fill in the blank, then they could be content. He has learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content, in verse 11. He learned how to be abased and abound, in verse 12. Everywhere and in all things, he has been instructed. Contentment, you see, is not so much having what we want, but contentment is found in wanting what we have. Contentment is not so much in having what we want, but in wanting what we have. The first point in this study of contentment is being content with the place that God has stationed you. Second point, contentment because of the power of God which strengthens you. Because of the power of God. In verse 13, I think we have the key. And I find it so interesting that this verse is one of the more familiar verses in the New Testament. Perhaps even recently, we see this on um, T-shirts, and we see it uh, used in ways to um, kind of give us energy and enthusiasm about conquering some next thing. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. But Paul writes this verse in the context of gratitude and being content being grateful. I can do it. I can be grateful. I can do this. I can do all things because of Christ who gives me strength to be content. That's the context of that verse. Here in verse 13, Paul very confidently writes that he can do anything with God's help. He's saying that he continually feels energized with the help of God. He's not talking about some outward set of circumstances. He's not talking about some inward source of strength as much as he's talking about a contentment, finding satisfaction, finding enough, recognizing God's gift and his goodness to us in the place and finding God's strength in that place. Verse 13 carries the idea that Christ is the source. He is the the sauce, if you want to say, for contentment. We've probably all been in places, and we've witnessed people losing it. I remember a number of years ago being at an airport. It was in Chicago, and we wanted to get to Philadelphia. And it was getting later and later, and it was the last flight out of Chicago to Philadelphia. And the plane was being delayed, and the flight was uncertain whether it was going to leave. And a man came up to the counter, and he absolutely lost it. He had a, I would say, a a first-class meltdown. To the person behind the counter who could probably do nothing, 
other than just relay information that was given them. But perhaps we've been in traffic jams or some other place where we've seen people just lose it out of disappointment or sadness for the situation that they were in. How about when there's careless drivers or you're in a, in a traffic jam? I think it's in those moments, it's in those moments that we expose the inner source of our strength. Some people, when, there's, when life brings very difficult and painful situations, turn to drugs or alcohol, booze, when things go against them. And that's the only resource that some people have, I guess. But until we learn to draw from the deep resources of God by faith, that's when we find that inner strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Think about it this way. In nature, for example, nature depends on hidden resources. Nature depends on things that can't readily be seen. Our, our bodies depend on air. We can't see air unless you put something in it. You mix something with air. It provides oxygen to our blood. Trees send down roots, massive root systems below the surface to draw up water and minerals from the ground to keep the tree healthy. The most important, important part of the tree is the part that you can't see. I think about these large sycamore trees over here, and there's no, there is no exposed dirt. There's blacktop probably for 150 feet, pretty much all around those trees. But those trees are tall and firm because they've got a root system. When it rains, the water rushes, washes a good distance away from where those roots are the base of that trunk. But they have a root system that goes way down, and it draws up water and minerals for these trees right outside our church building here. The most important part of a tree is the part that you can't see. And I think that's true for a Christian as well. The most important part of the Christian life is the part that God sees. The part that only God sees. Over and over, in Paul's letters to the churches, he mentions his dependence on the power of God. I can through Christ. That was Paul's motto. And it can be ours too. I feel in need of that so much. The Phillips translation puts it this way, this same verse, I am ready for anything through the strength of the one who lives within me. The Living Bible says, I can do everything God asks me to do with the help of Christ who gives me strength and power. The Amplified Bible says, I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. It doesn't matter what translation you prefer, the message is the same. The Christian the believer has the source of power. We have the sufficiency. We, God has given us what we need that is adequate for the task or the responsibility at hand. It's a subtle and a devious temptation to trust in our faithfulness, in our presumed strength and personal skills. And it's so easy for us to do that, right? It is for me. The secret of our strength is in our faith is in our rootedness in Christ and nothing else. Jesus Christ is the power that carries us through. John 15 is another passage that brings that out. Jesus is the vine. 
We are the branches. And as long as we, the branches, are connected to the vine, we bear fruit. We don't bear fruit of ourselves. When we become disconnected from the vine, we die and we're cast away and we're burned, he says, in that, in that context. Obviously, we have the power to be content because of the power that's inside of us. I can through Christ. The third aspect of contentment here in the text is because of the people of God who support me, the people of God who are around me. I believe that it's one of Paul's main purposes for writing the book of Philippians. And actually many of his epistles are for this exact reason. Paul was such a relational type person. And he blends so well with the people around him of all different cultures and, and levels of uh, social status and that sort of thing. And he writes the book of Philippians to express his gratitude, his thankfulness for them and for what they're doing for him. He begins in verse 12, in verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. He's referencing apparently some previous time when they had reached out to him, when the people of Philippi had done something for him. And now he throws a bouquet and he says, you're doing it again. Your, your care for me is going out. In chapter 3, in chapter 2, he highlights people in the church at Philippi that were instrumental in caring for him. When he talks about lacking opportunity in verse 10, I think he means that the gift had been a long time coming because of the delay of the messenger. And I'm not sure exactly, but the messenger, the, pit, the person who brought the gift from Philippi to Rome just probably was Epaphroditus. And he is credited with being the writer of this book According to some, he penned the words of Paul while he was in prison. He probably carried the letter to Philippi from Rome and in turn brought back a gift, probably monetary gift, probably some other items, for Paul while he was in prison. In chapter 2, we read of Epaphroditus that he had a near-death experience. I wish we'd have a little more detail, but possibly along the way, Epaphroditus became ill. He became sick for whatever reason. And it took a while for the gift to be brought back to Paul. But as Paul received their gift at the hand of Epaphroditus, he is filled with gratitude and thanksgiving for them. We find contentment in our lives. We become grateful. We experience gratitude in our lives because of the people around us, the people of God who support us. And it's also challenging, especially for me as I think of it. It's maybe easy for us sometimes to be especially discontent with the people who are closest to us, the people around who have the closest proximity to us. We're especially quick to fault, to fault them, to criticize them, to notice their weaknesses. Paul, on the other hand, expresses gratitude in his epistles for the people that brought that God had brought into his life. 
three observations about giving and receiving. Giving and receiving. In verse 18, we see the gift that God or that God had provided for Paul through the Philippians, through Epaphroditus, probably. And that gift brought blessing to the one who received the gift. Look at verse 18. Paul says, I have all and abound. He uses that word again. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things that were sent from you. And he says it was like a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable and well-pleasing to God. It brought joy and blessing to Paul, who was the receiver of this gift. As he evaluates the gift, he says, I'm full. I've, I have, yeah, I'm abounding. I have more than enough because of this gift. It brought blessing. And then in verse 18, again, he, that gift in turn brought blessing to God. Paul started to bless God for bringing the Philippians into his life. And this gift that was brought to Paul brought blessing to God through Paul's words. He says that it was well-pleasing to God. And then thirdly, giving also brings blessing to the one giving the gift. Look at verse 14. Notwithstanding, ye have done well that ye did communicate with my affliction. Paul gives them a personal blessing. And again in verse 17. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. He has blessings for the Philippians as he thinks of them. Not only does he thank God, but he also brings blessing and thanks to the people that gave it. In verses 21 and 22, Paul goes further. And he talks about the people that God had brought to him. There's three groups of people that are mentioned here in verse 21 and 22. The brethren, he says, that were with me. The first group that Paul mentions were the brethren that were with me. And I think that's a great interest and value to note that as Paul ministered, while he may have been the face of the encounters, he may have been the one that was being recorded. Luke and others, obviously he was more, he was outspoken, he was gifted, he was called. But there was hardly ever throughout Paul's ministry in the book of Acts where he was alone. He was not a lone ranger. He was seldom unaccompanied. And that's an important lesson for me and for all of us. Secondly, Paul talks in verse 22 of all the saints. If you turn over to the last chapter of Romans, you'll see a long, basically all of Romans 16 is a list of names of people that were around Paul and helping him and ministering him. And Paul discusses and talks at relative length things that they had done for him and were doing for him and the blessing that they were to him while he was in prison in Rome. 
The third thing that we see here in Philippians, in verse 22, and also in chapter 1, verse 13, is those from Caesar's household. I don't know for sure what all that means. I think this description could probably embrace quite um, a, a big group of people from all over Rome, people that were part of the Roman Empire. It could include slaves and prisoners and and free people from all over the Roman Empire. But I think it could also mean and talk about people who were won to Christ, who were converted as a result of Paul and ministry by others in Rome. People who had been won to Christ as a result of the testimony of Paul. In chapter 1, verse 13, Paul seems to indicate that there were converts who worked in the palace, Christians who worked in the palace who were converted as a result of his imprisonment. Isn't it amazing how God used Paul to meet other people's needs and how God used other people to meet Paul's needs? And that is just a direct result of how God works in the people that God has placed around me, who has people he has placed around you. Many, many times we have our needs met through the people that are around us. And sometimes we're tempted to especially look further outside of our circle and think those are the people that are surrounding us. But Paul names people that were often right close to him, and I find that very instructive. It's easy for us to be the least grateful for the people that are closest to us, whether it's the people that live in our house or the people that we work with or the people that yeah, are in our circle of friends. Those are the people that are sometimes we need to cultivate the most gratitude and the most thanksgiving for. Paul found contentment because the people of God who were right around him. <clears throat> the fourth thing I see here is contentment because of the promise of God to sustain us. God has given us so many promises in his word. And he has brought promises to our attention and to our mind in various ways. And here in Philippians, Paul reminds the Christians, the church in Philippi, that God had obviously, God had very obviously cared for them through the difficulties that they had faced and through the difficulties that he had faced. God had cared for them through that. God had supplied their needs God had supplied his needs. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 of chapter 4. It says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. There's five things that I see here. Number one, in verse 19, the promise is personal, very personal. My God, he says. My God and then he goes on to say that it's positive in the sense that my God shall supply. He, it's, he does, uses the word shall. It's a definitive and imperative word. It's something that will happen, shall happen. In the positive sense that God shall supply. And it's very pointed. He, he says, in the, 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 he goes on to say that he will provide all of your need. 
And then, of course, it's very plentiful. According to God's riches in glory, how, how, how much is that? We have no idea God's riches in glory. We can't quantify them here in this life. We have no idea how, how many or how awesome those riches are. But those are the riches that God has entrusted or is promised is coming to the life of a Christian. They're plentiful and, of course, very powerful. He qualifies this promise according to Christ Jesus. How faithful is that? How powerful is that? How qualified is this promise? It's a consistent principle that we see in other places in the Gospels as well. In Luke chapter 6, verse 38, it says, Give, and it shall be given you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. Look at some of the stories in the Gospels. You lend your boat to Jesus for part of an afternoon so that he has a floating pulpit, and that boat is returned to you full of fishes. Place your upper room at his disposal for a single evening, and you will f Jesus fills it and more with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Place your hands, place in his hands a few small fishes and some barley loaves. And he not only satisfies your hunger that day, but you have 12 baskets left over. Farmers and gardeners scratch the surface of the soil and we place a few small seeds out of sight. And within a few months, the whole area is covered with prolific harvest that amounts to many, many times more than the amount we placed in the ground. Hundreds of times, thousands of times the amount of kernels that we seemed to throw away. Some of you sitting here today Remember the Great Depression. Most of us don't remember the Great Depression. It was perhaps the most difficult time financially in the history of our nation. Many of us don't remember the Great Depression, but quite a few of us grew up in homes who were impacted by the Great Depression. The experiences of our parents and grandparents shaped how we think about life and how we think about consumerism and consumption because our parents experienced the Great Depression. But those youngsters of us have almost no memories anymore. And our lives have been transformed and shaped because for quite a few decades, for almost 50 or 60 years, depending on how you count, if a person worked hard and a person kept at it and a person made good, smart decisions, there was almost always lots of reward for hard work. And we youngsters probably have 10 tend to have the least amount of appreciation for that. We tend to think, on the other hand, that we've got it coming. 
In fact, maybe we don't even really have to work hard at it. We don't really have to keep at it. We've got it coming to us. Entitlement sort of starts to set in. I don't think there has ever been a time in the history of Anabaptism, in the history of Anabaptism, which is almost 500 years old, I don't think there has ever been a time in the history of Anabaptism where there has been as much prosperity and financial flourishing business opportunities as there has been in the last 30 to 40 years. And in spite of all of that, we're not one bit more content. Instead, we're probably more discontent. And there's probably more complaining about our perceived misfortunes. For the most part, prosperity has not served us well. I remind you all that this verse does not say that God will supply all of our greeds, that God will supply all of our wants, that God will provide all the things that we think we're entitled to receive. It says that he's going to supply our needs. And that's a wonderful promise that I want to learn more about as a father, as an individual. I want to learn that. A reading that I came across some time ago that has challenged me again as I think of it. Here's the reading. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. I'm sorry, I started at the wrong place. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without the limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. <clears throat> There's too many of us of which this could be said. It could be said about me. We're always searching for contentment. 
and never finding it. Contentment, my friends, never comes from having adequate resources. I'm sorry. Comes from having adequate resources. Contentment comes from having enough. And if we look to have these resources and these channels filled in the things of life, we're never going to find them. But real contentment, genuine contentment, comes from realizing that our resources are not bound by time. You see, we look to fill our contentment cups with things that, are, that aren't timeless. They're limited by time. But real contentment comes from finding things or seeing things that are not bound by time. come to us as a result of our faith and our commitment to such things as the providence of God, the power of God, and the promises of God. The old adage that I want to leave with you as I close. The old saying, the best things in life are not things. And my prayer is that I, that we, would embrace that this Thanksgiving season and the other 11 and a half months of a year. The best things in life are not things. It's very easy for us to forget that. If you're able, I invite you to kneel for prayer. Heavenly Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I thank you for your blessings to us, and I thank you especially for Jesus Christ. I pray that as we enter this Thanksgiving season that we would not be dominated by the things that we have, but we would look to things that are not bound by time, things that are not limited in the scope of our human existence. And Father, Remind us and bring things to our attention that would help us and call on us to turn to, to you and your resources and the things that we receive from you as a result of our faith. I thank you for this passage of Scripture in Philippians, and I thank you for the promises that we can do all of these things through Christ, who sustains us, who helps us, who gives us the power to do what we ought to do, what we can do. We pray it through Christ. Amen.